Hey, good to see you today. I want to take a moment and just have a little family time together, as often we do as we start out our services. Um, this is our very first Kingdom Kids Day. A lot of work, prayer, effort has gone in. I don't know, did you see some of the castle stuff in the foyer? And, and if you haven't done so, just take a moment and go down the stairwell that's over here. See all the castle stuff down the stairwell, and then go into the throne room that's down there and check it out because some people put some fantastic time. And I would say to applaud right now, but the deal is they're not here. They're all downstairs working. And, um, but some point in time, we're going to need to thank these people for all of their excellent work. And what I just found out, and I, and I from the way it has gone, they just registered their last child. That's how long the line has been out in the foyer. And with all the workers and all the kids, there's 165 people downstairs. Can you imagine? That's just fantastic. So we are, we are absolutely thrilled. I'm really excited to hear from my kids what they thought and how it went. So be praying for that. Here's another uh, family thing. Our, our staff here at East Bay Calvary is an absolute blessing. And I love working with them. They, they are hard workers. They really do their very best unto the Lord. And um, we've, we have asked a lot of them. I have asked a lot of them lately. They have worked so diligently to get through the last number of weeks and then especially through Easter. And some of them have, it's been a little while since they've had a day off or a full day off. And there's one person right now that has been sick for a week I noticed last Tuesday at our staff meeting, they all were yawning. <clears throat> and I just worked them to the bone. And um, I've heard some of you have been asking how I'm like to work with. You've been asking the staff. And so I told them that our motto in the staff is the beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> These folks are great. I asked our elders, and I just want to let you know this, I asked our elders if we could do a staff lockout day, and we are. This is not in your bulletin, um, but I want to let you all know, this Tuesday, all of the church staff, the pastors, workers, all the church staff is locked out of the church. They are not allowed in the church. Isn't that great? I told them they need to stay home. They need to rest. There are extra points for them if uh, they stay in their pajamas all day long. And they have three rules that they need to abide by. Number one, if anyone starts to ask some questions about church, they're supposed to put their hands over their ears, scream, and run the other way. They need a break. I told them, number two, if, if you rest at home, you may do anything restful except um, watch the Hallmark Channel. And you cannot watch reruns of Touched by an Angel, okay? Both of those are forbidden. But the main thing is to take time to relax and realize that we love and appreciate them. They really are an awesome staff. And I'm just so grateful for everything that they've been doing here and them putting up with me. So um, make sure that, that you be praying for our staff. And then the last thing I wanted to mention, and this is why I wanted you to hold on to these uh, right here, 
This is what's starting next Sunday. We really want to be a help. You know, our mission here at East Bay Calvary is more and better. More and better disciples. It's not just more. We just don't want to have a big filled up auditorium, but no one's getting any better. And we just don't want to focus on better and not focus on more too. And so we're focusing on more and better. And a part of the better is what we're going to be offering in our electives that are coming up starting this coming Sunday. These are during the 9 o'clock hour, the hour right before here. And we have five different electives that we are offering. You saw these on the, on the earlier announcement video that we had. And um, what we would love for you to do, to have a little idea of where we may want to situate these electives as far as room size, if you would be so kind, um, circle the elective that you believe you would be attending this next week. We have one on um, Secrets from the Vine. It's a study in the Gospel of John. Um, Into the Frying Pan, which are tough questions on hot topics in our world right now. We have one called Help, I'm a Parent. And uh, it's 10 environments that encourage kids to follow God. We have our Senior Saints um, community called the Light Bears. And then we have a men's fraternity group that meets together and Circle the one that interests you. And then as you leave today, all of these cards go in the boxes that are by each door, whether you're down here or whether you're up in the balcony. Just make sure you circle one and put it in there, and that way we can get a feel for what interests you and what rooms are best to be able to put that in there. When you come in next Sunday morning through the main doors, you're going to see signs for what rooms and where we're going to be going. So uh, make sure you do that for me. We'll try to remind you before service is done. Is it warm in here? We can't help you with that. Um, I, I don't think there's anything we can do about it right now except um, just remind you it's really cold outside. And this is the better alternative, it really is. I'll do my best to try to keep your attention. So grab your copy of the scriptures, would you? Turn to Esther in chapter 7. The book of Esther in chapter 7 And what we're looking at this week is a tremendous story, an account of both revenge and rescue. It's been a couple weeks since we've been in Esther, and when we were in there last, we saw a few different things that um, were going on in the account of her life. Esther um, held her first banquet for the king. And if you've been with us through most of it, you will have learned or maybe you'll remember the reality that um, the Jews were being targeted in Persia. And there's a man by the name of Haman that hated Mordecai, who was a Jew. And Haman was second in command in Persia. He wanted to kill Mordecai and he wanted to kill all the Jews. And so Esther was a Jew. Esther was a cousin to Mordecai. Mordecai went to Esther and said, we need your help. We need your help. Please go to the king. And she was reluctant. And then finally, by the end, she was willing to go to the king and ask that he would spare the Jewish people. And she did so understanding that her very life could have been taken from her. So Esther decided that she would do this two-banquet thing. I don't know how she came up with it, except that God led her in this realm 
And she started with one banquet, and the king and Haman came to it, and, and then the king asked, what do you want? What do you want up to half of the kingdom? And she said, you know what, what I want, come to the next banquet that I'm going to do for you. And so the king came. And here's where we land in Esther in chapter 7 here today. What had happened in the meantime, in between banquet 1 and banquet 2, God brought Mordecai's good deed. Mordecai ratted out on some people that were going to assassinate King Xerxes. And the king had never repaid Mordecai. So in between banquet one and banquet two, God brought that to the king's attention. The king said, you know what? We never did anything for this man. Just then Haman walked into the throne room and was about to ask the king if he could execute Mordecai on a pole impaling him 75 feet up in the air. And if you remember this, you're wondering how high is 75 feet in the air? Well, I believe right there from a ground level to right there, if you want to be looking at spots in your eyes for the next few minutes, is about 50 feet. Have that again. And there was an impaling pole that Haman had built for Mordecai because he wanted to put him all the way 75 feet above all the people in Persia. And he built that for him. He went into the king to say, do I have your permission to execute Mordecai on this pole I built? And just when he walked in, the king said, what should we do for someone who has benefited me? And Haman thought it was about himself. And he said, let's, do, let's put the robe on him. Let's put him on a, on a horse. Let's parade him through the city. And let's have someone go before him saying, this is the man whom the king delights in. And the king said, great, you're going to do that for Mordecai. I wish I were there just to see that, don't you? He, Haman went home. He was upset, and his wife said, you know what, you're going up against the Jewish people, God's people, and it seems like you're going to come to ruin, and now we're at chapter 7. I'm going to read the whole chapter for you. So why don't you stand with me, keep the blood moving a little bit, keep your attention going in this warm auditorium, Chapter 7, you're going to see the sense of the passage. We're going to work through your study guide this morning, and we're going to walk away with two important lessons for us all to remember as we leave our assembly this morning. Look at chapter 7 with me. I'm going to read it for you. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. This is banquet number 2. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. Spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet. Because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? 
Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage and left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? Soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits, 75 feet, stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. What an awesome account. We've got to work through this, so have a seat. This is such an incredible account. There's even a young gal in our church who has struggled because she would be downstairs with our brand new kids program, but this is her favorite story in the whole Bible. And she's wondering, do I go up to big church today or do I go downstairs? And I'm not sure which one. I'm going to find out later on where she's at. That's how awesome this account is. Let's work through it together. Do you have your study guide there, the back of your worship folder? I want to work through a couple things with you. Can we just work through the text? Here's basically what happened. And then we're going to talk about a couple important lessons for you and I to work through here this morning. Number one in the chronology of the text, you're going to see Haman's plan was exposed. Haman's plan was exposed. This is basically verses 1 through 6. They went to the banquet, and it seemed as though everything came to light. All of the converging of plot and circumstance collided right here at this very moment. <clears throat> now, if you remember, Haman's intoxicating spirit of pride and bitterness snowballed in chapter 5. He built the impaling pole 75 feet high so he could skewer Mordecai on it. And I was wondering this week, you ever think about that? Why 75 feet high? You think about that? Why in the world 75 feet high above all of the people there in Persia? And I'll tell you probably why. He wanted to make a statement. He wanted everyone to see, you don't mess with Haman. You bow to Haman because Haman is the man in charge. And so he wanted to make a huge statement. That's where you go if you don't bow to me. Well, Haman's wife's statement at the end of chapter 6 whistled the end of his undoing when she said, Mordecai is of Jewish origin. You cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And I'm sure when Haman was in there and the secret of Esther's Jewish background came to light, 
all of a sudden, it all hit with him. He realized, Esther's a Jew, I'm out against the Jews, and I think he realized right there, I am in deep, deep trouble. When Esther pleaded with the king for her life and for all of her people, I'm wondering if Haman, all the puzzle pieces came together, and then she shed light on the whole plot, and Haman is the one who is trying to kill the Jews, of which she is one. Haman's plan came to light. Here's number two. For Haman, it goes from bad to worse. I love the posture of these three. Look at it with me, would you? The posture of the three. Number one, there was Haman in verse six. My translation mentions it this way. Then Haman was terrified. Can you imagine this? His whole plan to take Mordecai out and he gets there and he's talking with the king and everything seems to be going well. And then all of a sudden Esther says, I'm a Jew and this guy's trying to kill us. And it says he was absolutely terrified. Notice the posture of the king. Verse 7, my translation mentions, and the king got up in a rage. <coughs> Understanding his drinking habits... <coughs> I think it was ironic that the text mentions he even left his wine. That's a one mad guy right there. He was ticked. Did you notice Esther's posture? Look at verse 8. This is interesting. In verse 8, it says, Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch. Did you ever notice this before where Esther was reclining? Isn't that something? You talk about a woman, she wasn't terrified. She wasn't ticked. It doesn't even say she was nervous. She's on the couch reclining. A woman who at this point had given her life and put it in God's arms and says, you know what, God, whatever you have. I think you see a picture of true trust right here from this dear woman of God as she put it all out there. Everything was falling apart for Haman. Xerxes was upset. And then for Haman, it goes from bad to worse because the king walks in Haman is begging for his life while Esther is reclining on the couch and King Xerxes walks in and thinks he's making a move on his wife. You talk about going from bad to extremely worse. Reminds me of a couple quotes. Rollo May once said, it is an old and ironic habit of human beings to run faster when we have lost our way. I think a phrase that has stuck with me because I found myself there. It says, when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Haman was in a hole. And he dug it a little bit deeper when he begged for his life. And then, number three, letter C. Haman's end is in sight of everyone how the text seems to finish up here in chapter 7. 
His end is in sight of everyone. The moment the king vented about Haman making a move on his wife was the very last moment this man saw daylight. A sack went over his head. They cinched it up at his neck. And then if you notice, there is a servant, a eunuch, Harbona is his name. Are you familiar with suggestive sales? Have you ever gone through the drive-thru? And he said, I'd like a burger and fries and all that. I'll do value meal number seven. And then they say this, suggestive sales. Would you like to supersize that? Or I went to Subway last week and I ordered my tuna sub and got my chips. And then she said, you know, for just another 20 cents more, bless you. I'm telling you, thank you so much. For another 20 cents more, you can have a large drink with that. You ever have that? Or when you're done at the, at the restaurant and your waitress comes up and says, now, did you save a little room for, yes, we've all been there. Suggestive sales. Harbona. I love his suggestive sales. Check this out. He goes, puts the sack over, ties the cinch. The last time Haman saw daylight, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said this. No reason to say it except maybe some suggestive sales. You know what, king? A pole reaching a high of 50 cubits is by Haman's house. Huh. I think he had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. Huh. (laughs) Suggestive sales. The king bought the sales pitch, impale him. The end. I love it. Then the king's fury subsided. God saves some of his best lessons for such dramatic passages like this very one. This is so good. And I want to give you these two life lessons from Haman's end. I know it's 25 after. Don't get excited that I'm actually finishing soon. But there are two extremely powerful lessons for us to capture from this passage to take home with us. Folks, these are so important. This is where I want to put the car in park. Because I really feel that there's some people in this room right now who need a sense of assurance and confidence in their God for what you are going through right now. And I really want you to have it today. Here's lesson number one. And more than just write it down, begin to mull it over in your mind and in your heart. This lesson from chapter 7 in the book of Esther And here's what it is. Number one, God always gets the last word. Always. And can I hear an amen somewhere out there? It's the truth. God always gets the last word. Seems like evil men like Haman are promoted and given accolades and power and proven and faithful men like Mordecai oftentimes are just stuffed in the corner. Or overlooked. 
I was reading a book by Daniel Schaefer on Esther, and here's, here's a paragraph from him in this whole idea. He asks the question, do we live under the fear of our adversary's power and platform, wondering why God allows these situations to come? You ever sit there like, why am I struggling? And the, and the Hamans of life seem to be flourishing. He continues, we need to see that the ladders that they are climbing are precarious. Although it may seem like they can't fall and nothing can stop them, this is an interesting observation, the very height to which they attain often becomes the measure of their downfall. And then he finishes with this, the greater the visibility the greater the opportunity for God to display his power in, in an unmistakable way. And you can visualize this whole thought of Haman climbing this ladder and, ha- and Mordecai not be able to go anywhere. And Haman gets higher and higher and higher, feels that he can use his power in these negative ways. And you're wondering, how is he gaining so much prominence? And why does he seem to be succeeding in such a great way? And Daniel Schaefer so wisely states, you know, the higher he gets in the ladder, the more visible God's strength is going to be seen when he comes a-tumbling down. I think it's a very telling observation. Haman's fame and position kept creeping higher and higher, all the way to the very pinnacle where God was able to show his immeasurable power and might to all around I want to give you a couple of verses that show God's ultimate power in what goes on in our lives. These are verses I I want you to tuck away, write, make a note on in your copy of the scriptures. But listen to this. Proverbs 16, 9. Proverbs 16, 9. Please note this one for yourself. It goes like this. In his heart a man plans his course. But the Lord determines his steps. I was thinking about this because Haman made his plan to execute Mordecai. He had it all figured out. I built the pole. I'm going to go in and tell the king. The king's going to give me permission. I'm going to impale Mordecai. It's all going to be done. And it's interesting, in Proverbs 16:9, it just so vividly states, you know, we can make a plan. But guess who's ultimately in control? It's God. God is the one ultimately in control. God's the one that ultimately determines his steps. God rules over our plan. Here's the second verse for you. This is one I think has a bit of irony. If you're in Proverbs 16, you're going to notice just a few verses later in verse 33. Catch this verse. Verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap. Okay, now hold it right there. Can you remember early on in our study how Haman and the king planned to kill the Jews? They they cast lots. What day are we going to kill them? Let's cast lots. And they found out exactly the day. And we're going to be talking about that in the next couple weeks. This is the day we're going to do it. And they cast lots. Basically, they rolled the dice. It looked like chance to them. Well, this is an interesting verse from Proverbs 16. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It looks like chance to us. 
We think they might be in control, but here's the big phrase, and I don't think I could say it enough. God gets the last word. Reminds me of a man named Daryl Loomis. Daryl Loomis was a truck driver. Each week he hauled goods from Cincinnati to Atlanta. Joe's Diner was his favorite place to eat on that route from Cincinnati to Atlanta. And he always stopped for meals at Joe's. One summer afternoon, Daryl parked his big rig and he walked into the diner. Sitting down in his favorite seat, the third counter stool where he always sat, he ordered the usual hot meatloaf sandwich, mashed potatoes, iced tea. And in the distance, he could hear the roar of something and this big cloud of dust moving along and followed by the arrival in the parking lot of 12 members of a motorcycle gang. They parked all of their rigs, Harley-Davidson's with extended forks, fine bikes, awesome sight to see, and they parked all of their rigs right next to Daryl's Peterbilt truck. And they set down the kickstands and they walked in. As the gang stomped into the diner, the leader immediately spotted Daryl, says, Who's this little sissy at the counter? Daryl remained silent and continued eating his lunch. All 12 guys formed a semicircle around Daryl. The gang members started snapping their fingers in a cadence like this. Unperturbed, Daryl just sat and kept eating his lunch. One of the gang members picked up Daryl's iced tea and poured it over his head. The others watched and snickered, still snapping their fingers in unison. With his napkin, Daryl just wiped his face, continued eating his meal. Another gang member picked up Daryl's mashed potatoes and stuffed a handful into Daryl's ear, wiped it down Daryl's back. Daryl remained quiet, didn't respond just continued eating his lunch. And although the gang continued to harass and taunt Daryl, he never responded to any of it. Even when Daryl finished his lunch, he, he only stood up, he turned to Joe, silently paid his bill, left the diner without ever saying a word. And the leader of the gang, this big, burly guy, the leader of the gang just spoke up and said, man, what a wimp. That guy sure ain't much of a man, is he? And Joe looked out the window and said, no, he's not. He said he ain't much of a driver either. He just ran over 12 Harleys. <laughs> Doesn't that just make you feel good? You know... Notice I never said we get the last word. God gets the last word. The Bible is so penetrating with story after countless story of people that God used 
in his getting the last word, like here's some names, whether they're familiar or not, but guys like Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Mary. You talk about getting the last word. What about last week with Easter? I mean, the empty tomb is God saying, guess what? I get the last word. And then there's the book of Revelation where ultimately in the very end of things, guess who gets the last word? It's God. And here's where it hits home base for us. Just for a moment, I, I want to, would you, would you just in your Bible turn to Psalm 73? And, and in case you're wondering where in the world is that, just take a right from where you are. It goes Esther, Job, Psalms. Esther, Job, Psalms, Psalms 73. This is one to mark because the writer Asaph in Psalm 73 is brutally honest like we should be to one another. And he ends up confessing the reality of what you and I say in our head and in our heart at times. Notice verse 1 of Psalm 73 he says, I know this in my mind. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He says, I know it. Like, you know, I went to Sunday school. If someone said, is God's good? We say, amen, God's good. But then he says, notice verse two, but in my heart, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. Here's why. <clears throat> I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse 4, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're, they're not plagued by human ills. And then they're proud. They're violent. They're calloused. They have evil imaginations. They scoff. They speak with malice. They're arrogant. They say everything is theirs. Their tongues take possession of the earth. And therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And then they're like, hey, how does God know? God doesn't know all this. So this is what the wicked are like. And then notice his confession, verse 13 and 14. Gang, tell me you've never been there. Notice what he says. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. I have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Gang, tell me you've never been there. Really? You know what? I'm wondering if it's a lost cause doing this God thing. Really? I'm working my tail off. And my buddies that don't give a rip about God, they've got it all going. And I'm wondering... Is it really worth it? Am I wasting my time? You know how it goes. I'm sure there's some people sitting here right now and you're like, man, I've been keeping my life pure sexually and I'm single. And then there's my friend that sleeps around all over the place and guess what? They're getting married. Is it really worth it? Or there's someone that's saying, you know what? I'm living hand to mouth. And I give to the church. And my buddy that doesn't give squat or even go to church, he just won five grand at Turtle Stone Casino. Like, what? 
Thank you. Turtle Creek. <laughs> Just remember to give a tenth to the church when you go there. <laughs> we don't script this, folks. This is all... That was just a test to see if you knew really what it was. And then what about you do right at work, you come in early, you leave a little late, you don't rob them of anything, and then your buddy that comes in late and he's on the phone half the day texting, he gets the promotion. Come on, you've been there. And you're like, does this really pay off? Am I doing this for nothing? Here's what it comes down to toward the end. Notice verse 18. Actually, bump up to verse 17. Basically says, this was so tough until I entered the sanctuary of God. Notice what he says. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed. Completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you take me into glory. And I love this, what he says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth is nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. What a beautiful phrase this is. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you, they will perish. You destroy all who aren't faithful to you, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. And the psalmist says, this is what it is. God, you get the last word. And forgive me for counting the score at halftime and thinking it's the score at the end of the game. Sometimes that's our discouragement. We see halfway through and we're thinking, oh man, I'm losing this is all for nothing, and God's like, whoa, 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 hold on. That's not the score at the end. I do get the last word. You better stay on my team here if you want to win. One of the big lessons here of Esther in chapter 7 is God always gets the last word word and I can guarantee you on the other side when we get there and his last word is well done good and faithful servant to us we say I I was on the winning side wasn't I because God gets the last word here's the second thing those without God have no self-deliverance. And with this, we're going to finish up. Those without God have no self-deliverance. This is interesting because, you know, Esther and Mordecai and all the Jews all prayed for deliverance. 
A little while back, we studied how Esther said, you know what, let's all fast for three days. All the Jews, we're all going to fast for three days. And they did. They begged for deliverance from God. Now, it's interesting, in Esther 7, Haman begged for deliverance too. So you have three people in the text that all beg for deliverance. And that's why I want to promote the reality that those with God get deliverance. Those without him do not. Esther, Mordecai, the Jews asked deliverance of God. They cried out to God for deliverance. They received it. Haman cried out to the queen for deliverance. That's all he had. He begged the queen... And we have heard in the past the repeated words in Scripture, God is our deliverer. God is our deliverer. And the reality is, who else but him is the true deliverer? And the answer is, nobody. God is the only true deliverer. And that's a powerful statement that deserves more attention, especially when we consider the alternative. Who is the deliverer of those who don't have God? Answer that. Who is their deliverer? No one. And the passage lays it out in plain English. Those without God have no deliverance. Now Mordecai's deliverance seemed to come a little slow than he would have liked, but it came. And the truth is God hears the cries of his people. So I don't want you to get sidetracked. You know, we look at this, and Haman kind of takes the visual attention. Even the top of my chapter has this header, Haman impaled. But I want to submit to you, this passage is not about the impaling of Haman. It's not about who's on the impaling pole. This passage is about those who are not. This passage is about God's beautiful deliverance of his kids. The passage is about God hears your cry. He knows your hurt. He loves his children. And God is our deliverer time and time and time again. And this passage screams it out. Don't focus on who's on the pole, folks. Focus on who's not. And realize that God is the one who comes to our aid. It may not always be in the timing we would like. It may not always be in the way that we would like. But when we step out and trust him in faith, he will not let us down. And you wonder, how does God deliver us? And here's two things I want to give you. He delivers us in everyday circumstances. So here's where you are and here's where I'm at. How are you at work? How are you at home? Need a little deliverance? You know, more than Calgon, take me away kind of a thing. Uh, Need some help. 
How are you in your marriage or your parenting or your finances? What's your life like in your world? And you realize, man, I can't get through this by myself. just can't. God is your deliverer in everyday life. More than a self-help book or your horoscope or Dr. Phil or your phone-a-friend, let's not mistake begging of a friend for help and the true help that comes from begging of our God for our help. He's our deliverer. Here's number two. Your eternal destiny. How is he our deliverer? And this is one of the biggest ways. One day we pass, we breathe our last, and we stand before the God of heaven. And whatever you do, don't rely in yourself or in others or your church for your eternal destiny. Gang, I can't forgive you of your sins. This church cannot forgive you of your sins and pardon you. There's only one person who can truly deliver us eternally. That's the person of Jesus Christ because he died on the cross. He took on his body the weight of our sin. He bore our punishment on himself. And the text says clearly, if you want to be rescued, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It also says that familiar verse, John 3.16. You remember it in your head? Even from your kid years, you want to try to say it with me? For God so loved the world that he, his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not but have Whoever believes in him, our deliverer, our rescuer, that's our God. I want us to take a moment and just bow our heads. I'd love for you to not be distracted in any way. Maybe close your eyes. Need a little deliverance right now? Need some help? Yeah. You realize everywhere you're turning right now is in vain. And I know it may not be in the timing you would want or necessarily in the way you would want, but I, I want to encourage you, there really is only one deliverer. Haman's wouldn't work out. But Esther's deliverer came through. And God is the one I want to drive us back to with our trust, our dependency, friends, our reliance. Just lay it all out on him. And some of us here right now need, need to shoulder up to him and talk to him and ask for help. Whether it's a temporal thing here or whether it's an eternal thing, you need to give your life to Jesus. Believe he died on the cross for your sin. Turn to him and live for him. Whatever it is, in the quiet, take a moment to express your dependency on God as your deliverer. Just a moment. Would you do that in the quiet right now?
And Father God, your word is clear that you are faithful. That in our time of need, we can cast our care on you because you care for us. And God, we do have cares. We're, we're a hurting bunch. Just beg you to be our deliverer. Hear the cries of your people here. Give us our own Esther stories of how we had a need. And there you were. And there's no one else to whom the credit goes but to you. Be our deliverer. And all of East Bay Calvary said, Bible's full of accounts of deliverance. The unsinkable boat, or that ark, that rescued Noah and his family from the flood, the unsingeable trio of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, rescued from the fiery furnace. The untouchable Daniel, who wasn't eaten by the hungry lions in the den. The uncatchable Israelites who fled through the Red Sea from the Egyptians. The unreachable Rahab who escaped, conquered Jericho with her family. And this unending list has two things in common. Number one, they all involve people like you and like me who needed deliverance. And number two, they all involved a faithful unstoppable God who always gets the last word, always. Gang, that's our God. And he's just as much God today as he was way back then. Rely on him for your deliverance. That finishes up our time. Here's the last thing I need you to do for me. Make sure these are filled out. We want to be able to be of service to you here at East Bay Calvary. Make sure these are filled out. On your way out, there are boxes at each exit. Just go ahead and slip these in the box so we can know where you'll be next week when you come at 9 a.m. And we'll get, a, we'll get a place for you. That way we can learn and grow together together. If you put kids in the kids program, uh, they are ready to go for you in just a moment. And I'm sure the leaders are ready to let them go to you in just a moment. When you see them, uh, give them a big thank you. We got some people that did some awesome work, and I just love them for all that they've done. God bless them. And you know what? I love you too. Have a great week. God bless you.